All right, well, let's play some movie trivia. How many of you like movies? Any movie people? Okay, some of you really are movie people, but you don't want everybody to know it. But, but anyway, let, let me ask you some questions. This is, um, I'll put the questions up and uh, just keep the answer to yourself because it ruins for the people that are there trying so hard to figure it out if you just blurt it out. How's that? Okay. All right, here we go. Who was the first female monster to appear in a movie? Godzilla, Bride of Frankenstein, The Mummy, or Kim Kardashian? It was the Bride of Frankenstein. That was the first female lead character, I guess. All right, number two. What was the first movie that was ever given the title Blockbuster? Was it Star Wars, Gone with the Wind, Jaws, or Dumb and Dumber, that great classic? Which was it? It was Jaws. When I was a youth pastor, one of the first really stupid things I did that, that I had to go to an elders meeting to explain was we took the youth group to see Jaws. And it was a great movie. The kids loved it, and, uh, and I, I suffered over that for many, many weeks. But anyway, uh, number three, which of these actors once had a job polishing coffins? Marlon Brando, Sean Connery, Robert Pattinson, or Bella Lugosi? Sean Connery. Yeah, I was, I was going to go for Bella Lugosi because that's the kind of thing he'd like to do. All right, who, was the most, who has the most nominations for an Oscar in movie history? All right, Jack Nicholson, Lawrence Olivier, Paul Newman, or Justin Bieber? It's Jack Nicholson. In fact, he had 12 of these things. That's pretty amazing. Okay, what do the following six actors all have in common, besides the fact they're all actors? Daniel Radcliffe, Julianne Moore, Kira Knightley, Ian McKellen, Hugh Laurie, and Jodie Foster. Is it that they've all been nominated for an Oscar, they've all had the same director in a film, they've all been in a movie that earned $50 million at the box office, or they're all atheists? They're all atheists. In fact, Hollywood has quite a population of those who have no interest or belief in God. Well, last week we started a series on why believe. Why do we believe what we believe? We looked at why Christians are not atheists. We talked about how we can believe in God and we can believe in Jesus. And last week, Easter Sunday, we specifically talked about all the reasons that we can be sure that his resurrection actually happened. And we looked at a key scripture reference. And I want you to, as we go through this, each week we're going to start with this reference because I think it's good for you to have this memorized. It's 1 Peter 3.15. It's the rationale behind this series. In your hearts, the Bible says, you set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, the heartbeat of this series is to help you be able to do that, to give you information that you can then use to talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, people you work with, anybody you encounter, you'll be able and prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks you. So, today we're going to take a look at why we believe in God to begin with. I mean, granted, not many people are card-carrying atheists, you know, not a lot. I think there's a lot of agnostics, that seems to be the larger category, 
fair number of those. And maybe you know someone that is an agnostic or an unbeliever of some particular, and they have their reasons for that. But an agnostic doesn't necessarily reject God as much as it rejects the possibility of knowing. That's what the word means. Gnosis is the word for knowledge, and then you put the negative A in front of it. Agnostic means, that, well, you just can't know. You know. There's no way you can know whether there's a God or not. And frankly, that's kind of an intellectual cop-out. And don't, don't tell your friends that I said that. But that's kind of what it is. Because there are an abundant number of reasons why it's possible that God would exist. And we've seen that some of those things already. So today, what we're going to look at is four reasons, at least four. Four reasons the idea of God is so intellectually compelling to so many people. Here's the first reason. It has to do with what is commonly known as cause and effect. So this is number one. <clears throat> this reason for believing in God rests in a very simple, common sense question. You take a look around the world, take a look at all the stuff that's here in this planet, and you ask yourself, how did this happen? How is it possible that we're sitting here today on this ball out in space and it's rotating at a tremendous speed, and yet most of us are standing fairly calm. We're sitting very relaxed in our seats. All of the atmospheric things that are going on all around us and happens every single day has been going on for a very long period of time. How, what caused this? How is this possible? It's caused to be, it had to be caused by something. The universe had a beginning. And anything that had a beginning, well... Did it start itself, or how did it, how did it begin? For a long time, skeptics re- rejected the idea of cause and effect as an argument for God because they did not think that the universe had a beginning. The idea was that the universe was eternal. It had just it always existed. Now, how they came up with that conclusion, I don't know. But that was what they thought. But that's not what most scientists think today. We have technology and the ability to examine the world around us, our world particularly, and worlds away from us, other planets, other places. And we've never had that technology way back in the day when some of these arguments were first talked about. For example, the second law of thermodynamics, I'm trying to get to a scratch there. The second law of thermodynamics says that the universe is running out of usable energy. Now, I think that's just another way of describing many of us here today. Yeah, we're running out of use. How many of you are running out of usable energy? Yeah, I see. I've oh, got a witness there. Thank you there. You didn't raise your hand. You should have raised your hand. In fact, there's a bunch of you that should have raised your hand, probably. But that's the idea. The second law of thermodynamics says that that is the case. And if it's running down, then it can't be eternal and must have at one time been given a start. So if something's winding down, it must have at some point been wound up. Does that make sense? Think about a clock. If you have a clock, the old clocks had to be wound up. Now, but what is really, turn these scientific communities on their ear, has been this idea that rests in something called the Big Bang. Now, that's not the TV show, okay? This view was first put forward by Dr. Edwin Hubble, and we named that famous telescope after him. And uh, he 
concluded, his theory, was that at one time, all of matter, all of everything that existed today was packed into a very dense mass of at temperatures, some trillions of degrees or whatever. And then billions of years ago, at some point in time, there was this huge explosion. And from that explosion, all of the matter that today forms our planets and our stars and, in fact, frankly, everything, I guess, and all of that was born. The explosion created the universe. Now, if you don't think that sent shockwaves through the world of cosmology, watch this video clip. Since the late 1920s, everything we know about how our universe works has been turned upside down. It's important to realize how much our picture of the universe has changed in the last century. At the beginning of the 20th century, the conventional wisdom in science was that the universe was static and eternal. In 1929, that all changed. At the Mount Wilson Observatory above Los Angeles, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered galaxies aren't stuck in one place. Not only are they moving, but they're flying away from Earth at incredible speeds. This was the first real evidence of the Big Bang. All galaxies on average were moving away from us, and stranger still, those that were twice as far away were moving twice as fast. And those that were three times as far away were moving three times as fast, and so on. Everything was moving away from us. It became known as Hubble's Law. His discovery is still the starting point for exploration of the Big Bang. What Hubble convincingly demonstrated by seeing the motion of those galaxies is that the universe is expanding. Theoretically, an expanding universe must have started from a single point. By measuring how fast the universe is expanding, astronomers calculated backwards and figured out when it burst into life. People ask the question, how do you know that the universe is 13.7 billion years old? I mean, smarty pants, you weren't there 13.7 billion years ago. Well, when you watch television on videotape, you hit the stop button when you see an explosion. And you could run it backwards and see when it actually took place. The same thing takes place with cosmology. We can run the videotape backwards and then calculate when it all came from a cosmic explosion. So what does that mean? Let's translate that. It means we have a creation event. But do we have a God? Well, science can't answer that. That's, that's way above its pay grade, frankly. But it sure has led a lot of people to think that way. And the reason why is because if the universe could not have been coming to being by itself from nothing, then the original matter had to come from someplace, somewhere. So where did the stuff that got banged, so to speak, come from? Well, you can't not ask those questions. That's a crucial question. Logic declares you can't have a big bang without something initiating it or starting it. Or as a leading physicist of MIT has written, even if you could come up with a theory that could account for the creation of something from nothing through the law of physics, you'd still have to account for the origin of the law of physics. Where do those laws come from? You see, all this makes the idea of a, of a creation through a creator 
not only compatible with science, but almost demanded by it. So when you look at what the Bible says in Genesis 1.1, it begins to add up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, one who was without beginning, one who stands outside of the boundaries of space and time, created. And because, as it adds in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. How? They're understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. What's, a, what's exciting to me is to see that men are looking at this kind of thing. Scientists, men and women, they're exploring and wondering and examining. And if you have an open mind, which you're supposed to, then that would help you begin to see how some of this fits together. So one of the reasons that we can believe in God is what we've just described, this cause and effect sequence. Here's another, a second reason. It has to do with design and order. And the basis for this reason is believed to be found in a very important question. How do you account for the amazingly intricate design of everything, especially the universe? Now, this is an old idea, frankly, because the Greek philosopher Plato, way back when, first began to, to talk about it. And then later on, uh, an astronomer named William Paley, William Paley he popularized it itself. And the idea is this. If you have a design, it implies there's a designer. Does that make, does that make sense? I mean, if you, if you find a watch, you would understandably look at it and say, well, there must be a watchmaker. If you see a building, then you're going to say, well, there must have been a builder or an architect behind that building. If you, if you look at a painting and you stand back, you would take for granted that it didn't just pop up there somehow. There had to be a painter or an artist. And the greater the complexity, the greater the difficulty of the design and the order of something, then the more you have to have, it begs almost for a designer. I once heard it put this way. It's one thing to see a log jam in the wilderness. Now, I've been into Canada fishing and there's a lot of, a lot of uh, beaver dams. If you see a lot of beaver dams, and they're made, you see the, the, the way they just kind of block up everything. Uh, my brother-in-law had to climb over one one time just to get our canoe through an area there of the wilderness. So we were not really happy with that beaver. And my brother-in-law said if we had a gun, we would go hunting. We'd go beaver hunting. But we got it done. But that's what you think. But if you look at this picture, this is a picture of Hoover Dam. It's a little more complex, wouldn't you think? I mean, there was intentionality, there's purpose and design. Can you even imagine building that size of dam? It's crazy. Or think of another thing. What about the space shuttle? Imagine you see a space shuttle, and you come upon it, and you're in the desert. And here's this space shuttle sitting out here on the sand. Now, you could reason that it, well, it just came together by chance, perhaps. That the metal somehow was all, maybe it was a sandstorm that just blew all these pieces together and suddenly you had this amazingly complex uh, flying machine by a freak of nature. But it's highly unlikely that that would be your first thought. If you came upon something like that, you would say, well, somebody brought it in here, landed it here. Somebody had to build this thing. It didn't just happen. 
There's a staggering amount of design and order to the universe. So much so that it compels many people to even refer to the great designer of the universe. They, they don't want to call him God. You know one of the reasons why people don't want to really acknowledge God? is because that implies that there's someone in this universe that can hold you and me accountable because he made us. And nobody wants to have that. We'd rather let ourselves be accountable. That's one of the flaws of sinful human beings. We want to run things. And we don't like people telling us what to do. And so this is why keeping it impersonal and and things like that is so much easier for us. Listen to the first four verses, though, of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. But you know, these, this amazing design is not just found in the heavens, but also in the intricately ordered but amazing design of the human body. In fact, that's one of the most ordered uh, devices or mechanisms, if you want to call it that, on the entire planet. Now, here you might say, well, wait a minute, now you're moving into evolution or something, and doesn't that disprove God? Well, no, it doesn't. If the theory of evolution were really ever 100% proved anyway, beyond any shadow of a doubt, it would still require a great reason to believe in God, and here's why. Let's talk about evolution for a minute. Because first, it's absolutely true that God created, and the Bible tells us God created human beings, and here's the way it says it. God created in his own image, Genesis uh, 127, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he's describing our creation. And then it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being or living person. So the Bible starts out from, you know, early, early on that there is a creator and that we are wonderfully and fearfully and carefully designed. That the entire process was miraculous and supernaturally generated and guided by God himself. But what it doesn't say is how. I mean, poetically it does. He said he, he, he made Adam from the dust of the earth, kind of a poetical statement. He talks about breathing the breath of life into this, this uh, uh, man. And that doesn't, you don't really see that kind of terminology in a biology textbook. You know, that, that, that's kind of more poetic. But we're told that God did it. Not necessarily are we told exactly how he did it. And though evolution is one of the leading theories for the how, and that's just fine. If you, God wanted to use evolution, he could do so. But that doesn't mean that there was not an original Adam or an original Eve and that God breathed an actual soul into them at the end of the process to mark the beginning of the human race as we know today. Christians believe that Adam and Eve were our ancestors. In fact, if you know much about evolution, if it's true, what you're still going to have to have is an outside force some outside intelligence to start the ball rolling. The theory of evolution almost screams, again, for intelligent design. In fact, one scientist has written, if you were to compute the amount of time required just to get together all 200,000 amino acids for one human cell to get them together by chance, you'd be 
having to put the working dynamics, they get this, of an iPod, an iPhone, an iPad, and a smartwatch, all being instantly created from an explosion at a computer parts warehouse. And when all the explosion clears, there they are, all these, these technologically complicated gadgets are there. Now, so if evolution were true, there's, there's still a need for some outside force guiding, enhancing, and speeding it along in the time frame with the age of the earth. But that's not all. Even if there was enough time, you still need something or someone back to the beginning to start the process. And that's what they're finding through something called molecular biology. It's a fairly new uh, uh, concept or study because we never had devices that could look into things so deeply and so tiniest little, you know, we have microscopes, but nothing like a molecular type of microscope that can go into the molecule itself and see how it's put together. By the way, Charles Darwin said one time, he said that the one thing that scared him the most, and this is, this is the guy, this is Mr. Evolution. He's got started so much of this. And he said one time, he said, what keeps me from sleeping soundly at night, what do you, what do you think it would be? He said, it's the human eyeball. The human eye. Oh, how it distressed him. Because he could not, he could not his idea here was that for an eye to be created, then you had to have, it was just so interesting. When you think about it, your, your ability to see and process what you see and understand what you see. According to evolutionary theory, our ability to see would have had to start with one little tiny light-sensitive spot, which then evolved into what we see with today. But the problem is that when you finally got to the point where you're able to study on the molecular level, we found that's not so simple. It was irreducibly complex. By that, they mean that it could not have happened by itself. The design of our bodies and the complex interrelationships that exist, they, it begs for a designer. The alternative is to say that time plus chance in the context of chaos, <laughs> created a universe of incredible order and creatures of stunning design. You had no idea you were stunningly designed, did you? I mean, you go home and look in that mirror and just say, I am so stunningly designed. You know, the Bible puts it this way, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I know why the fear is there, but the wonderful part, you know, that's the way it describes us. And you add to that the fact that our world is uniquely suited to human beings. Carbon-based life has so many more complex and wonderful details that if changed only slightly, if tiny little changes in the world around us would be impossible for us to exist. Therefore, any reasoning person is compelled to consider that it had to be intentionally created for the very purpose that we read about in Scripture. That God would glorify, man would glorify God, and we would recognize who our Creator was. The picture on the screen here is Stephen Hawking, amazing physicist, died a few years ago. I love one of the books that he wrote. It's called A Brief History of Time, and it's about that thick. 
Yeah, kind of like a sermon. You know, it starts out small, but just gets just really, really. But um, he wrote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings just like us. Isn't that interesting? What an amazing confession. Take a look at this video on how it plays out from a scientific perspective. When I was an atheist, I saw planet Earth as being one of probably billions of planets just like it all over the universe. I saw our sun as being an average, undistinguished type of a sun. I figured as I looked up at the stars at night that there must be millions and millions of advanced civilizations out there. I just thought there was an ordinariness to our situation. This line of reasoning was totally consistent with my atheistic worldview. But what I learned later is that it's not consistent with what science is revealing about the Earth. Strobel's investigation caused him to consider the many conditions necessary for a life-sustaining planet. In the process, he was introduced to the science of astrobiology and astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez. I'm an astrobiologist, and what motivates me is just to examine the conditions necessary for life and look elsewhere in the universe and see if those conditions are met anywhere else. And the answer could be yes, and the answer could be no. And either answer is interesting. For more than a decade, Guillermo Gonzalez has researched the characteristics of a planet required to support complex life. Estimates vary, but a current list of these factors would number at least 20 and include an oxygen-rich atmosphere, liquid water and large continental land masses, a home star of the right temperature and mass, an orbital path that is neither too far nor too close to the home star, a moon large enough to stabilize the tilt of the planet's axis and the movement of its tides, a magnetic field strong enough to deflect the sun's radiation, and a position in the relatively narrow habitable region of a spiral galaxy. All these factors have to be met at one place and time in the galaxy if you're going to have a planet as habitable as the Earth, which you need for complex and even technological life. Theorists have attempted to calculate the odds of all the necessary factors for life appearing at the same time on the same planet. A conservative estimate is one chance in 10 to the negative 15th, or one one thousandth of one one trillionth. On those terms, even when compared to the billions of suns and possible planets in our Milky Way galaxy, the probability of even a single habitable world appears unlikely. There are many probabilistic resources in the galaxy, but on the other side of the coin are all these factors that you need. You have to get just right in order to have just one habitable planet like the Earth. And that leads me to conclude that, yes, we're rare in the galaxy. So you have to have cause and effect. You've got to have design. You've got to have order. You're seeing all these things that they're talking about. But there's even yet another reason to believe. And it's what you know best. In fact, if you had a mirror, you could pull it right up and gaze into that mirror and see you, 
see yourself. The, the humanness of humans would be the point we've made here at the end. It is difficult for many to believe that the human personality, the human soul, I mean, if you will, that, that part of us, that, that, that voice that we communicate with, that, that sense of a have human spirit, that God bears witness, his spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we are special and unique. That humanness is hard to see something as a product of evolution. Legs and arms and lungs, maybe, but not what's in the inside. That which makes you and me who we are. Where does thinking come from? How are we able to think and reflect and feel and reason? There's this voice inside our heads, and that did not evolve out of some primordial slime. Where do it, what is it? Where did it come from? And even more important, where does our spirituality come from? In reflecting on this, again, one of my favorite Christian writers, C.S. Lewis, he noted, you know, it's interesting, we have an appetite for food, and there's food to satisfy that need. The idea of naturalistic evolution is that our drives developed out of our bodily needs and from the realities of the world. Okay, we have this, also we have this drive to know God. And an authentic spiritual hunger. In fact, it's referred to as a God-shaped hole. But there has to be a God to fulfill that. It doesn't make any sense. Why would creatures who evolved by chance as a result of naturalistic causes alone, why would we desire and hunger after a creator God? At some point, particularly in our modern context, you would think that the wish and the desire and need or need for God would just simply end. Yet it only grows. In fact, the results have come in from a 12-year research study that is charting out the future of world religion. They're tracking where world religions were a while back and where they are now. And if that growth continued, where we'd be in the future. That's what they're designed to study for. The headline was, quote, we're going to be even more religious than ever in the future. Which makes no evolutionary sense if there's no God. But then there's the Bible's answer. We're spiritual beings because we were made to be spiritual beings. It's hardwired into our DNA, if you please. We were created by God for God. Or as the biblical writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the hearts of every one of us. So now it's your turn. Does the existence of God make more sense than the non-existence of God? And I'm not talking just a mental understanding of it. That's important. But there should be a deepening understanding in our very hearts, our spirits, our souls. The areas that that, that God inhabits, his Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. That the things we're reading and hearing make sense. Does the existence of God make more sense? Well, we can say that the, the Big Bang did whatever it did. You can say that the complexity and design of a universe, not to mention our bodies, well, that just happened by chance. You can say that our innate spirituality is just a fluke. Or you can say, you know, it makes more sense to put God back into the equation, back to the center of our life, because he's the only one that answers the questions that we have. And if you were with us last week, we're not talking about just any God but the God who came in the person of Jesus. The God who wants to be known by every one of us. 
God who loves us. Maybe you're looking to fill that God-shaped hole in your life. If so, I'd love to talk to you about it. I would love to, uh, to have a conversation. Maybe we can set that up. I'll be in the foyer near the information desk if you have further questions. But as we go through this series, we're not done yet. We've got some more things we need to, to know the answer to. Why believe? There's some things we need to follow through with. But I really want you to ponder. In order to give an answer for the hope that we have, we really should understand what's happened in our hearts and lives. The walk we have with God is not just some imaginary thing. We don't come together Sunday to worship a myth. It's based in history, time, logic. Every way you can account for things, the answer comes up. You know, we wouldn't have them if it wasn't for God. Father, thank you for our time together today. And I do pray that you will deepen us. Not just our knowledge issues, not just things we know about, but Father, I pray you would deepen us in our connection with you. Help us, Lord, invite you more into our lives. We tend to just operate on our own and do what we want to do. But Lord, help us remember that we're not here by accident. Every one of us is a breathing, living testimony to not just your creativity, Father, but that you have love. In fact, you loved the world so much, you gave us Jesus. So I pray that as we go through these somewhat technical, some, somewhat worldly ways to talk about spiritual things, I pray, Father, that it would be to take us on a journey to fuller and more meaningful understanding of you as our Creator God, but also loving Father, who has gone to great lengths that we might be with you for eternity. That's what we come together. This is not just a religious functioning activity. This is a relationship. And Lord, we thank you for inviting us in it, into that relationship, and for providing us with the desire to want to come to you and not seek our meaning and purpose and for all the things we do in our existence around the world. We will never, ever receive the kind of significance that we would have by being simply your child. And I thank you for our church. I thank you that you're taking us down pathways that will help us grow deeper and more mature. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.